And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Kerning Cultures. Today is a slightly different episode. It's a shorter one, and it's about one man's love for a really special place in the world. A place that was once known as the cradle of civilization. The word Iraq means to me the marshes. It's impossible to describe the marshes in words. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. So I'll try to paint a picture for you. Imagine you're in a hot desert and all of a sudden you see in the horizon this green, wall of green, that if you kind of step up, you can see the green extending all the way to the end of the horizon. Azam al-Wash grew up in Iraq in the 1960s. His dad was an irrigation engineer, and it was kind of an ordinary job, except for the fact that he worked in a pretty extraordinary place. Imagine yourself then riding a boat, surrounded by reeds that extend into the sky, water underneath you, so clear that you can see the fish. And every now and then, the boat goes out into a wide lake, and your movement disturbs birds, and the birds in the thousands or tens of thousands will, will fly into the sky, making the sky black from, from their density. The air comes into your face, drying it and, and, and cooling you. And you will reach the center of the, of the marshes, the Baghdadia Lake. And there, I could leave you for four hours just enjoying the, the sound of the wind going through the reeds, the noise of the wings of the ducks as they, as they, as they go up in the air, even the noise that a fly makes as it approaches you <laughs> is magical. To me, the marshes are not just a beautiful place. To me, the marshes represent a place where I was with my father alone, where I had his attention. You know, you're, you're, feeling, you're feeling warm, you're feeling happy with your dad, your dad's attention is all to you. It's a special place for me more than because of nature, because it's my connection to a warm place in my childhood. These marshes once covered a huge 15,000 square kilometer area in southern Iraq, to the north of Basra and bordering Iran to the east. They make up the final stretch of the Fertile Crescent, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers deposit into the sea. And throughout history, societies have flourished in this area. Fields like philosophy and mathematics were said to have been born here. It's about 7,000 years ago, mankind found these lakes and said, hmm, I don't need to go hunt and gather food. I can live here around. Fishing is a plenty. I don't need to go out and hunt. I can fish. I can grow rice and wheat around the surroundings of this. So essentially what happened is that the edges of these marshes were the place where first mankind settled permanently in one place, living off of nature, living one with nature. 
and understanding the rhythms of nature and in a sense shaping nature while, while nature shaped their way of life. On the edges of these marshes is where mankind built the first permanently occupied cities. It is where the letter was invented. It is where Abraham was born. It is our connection to the early Sumerians. And so we hark back to the era when mankind lived in harmony with nature, off of nature, but part of nature, not its controller. In a sense, these marshes don't just belong to Iraqis. They belong to the rest of the world. For centuries, the marshes have thrived in a natural ebb and flow. In the spring, snowmelt from the mountains of Kurdistan causes floods in the south of Iraq. The marshes then become a natural basin for the water and with it, fertilize the surrounding land. But in the last hundred years, as careless regimes have come and gone, this ecological gem has become increasingly threatened, slowly at first and then all at once. During the British mandate, parts of the wetlands were destroyed while drilling for oil. But nothing has had a more destructive effect than Saddam Hussein's regime in the 1990s. During the 1990s, right after the 1991 Intifada, uh, Saddam decided that these marshes could become, or have become, a base for his opposition. Now, put yourself as a in the in the mindset of Saddam, he just came out of a war, survived the war. He wants to stay in power, so he understood instinctively that the presence of a of a militia could become destabilizing, or could be the worst way of destabilizing his control. The communities living in the marshlands were singled out. There was torture, mass arrests, and forced disappearances. Saddam Hussein's assault on the marshes and the people who lived there was motivated by a few things. Many of these communities were Shia, and the marshlands had provided refuge for political opponents of the regime. Then in 1991, marsh Arabs took part in a rebellion against Saddam Hussein's government. So in retribution, he ordered the construction of a series of dams and dikes designed to starve the marshes of their livelihood, of the water. That's one of Saddam's canals, designed to capture the water carry it past the marshes and dump it in the Persian Gulf. Every large piece of equipment was mobilized for the purpose of drying the marshes. And so they built thousands and thousands of kilometers of embankments to keep the water of the Tigris and Euphrates inside these and basically directed the water into the desert away from the marshes and deprived the marshes of their source of water. So by redirecting the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates away from the marshes, he managed to dry an area that has never been dried in, 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 in history. Um, and in, in fact, as a result, a civilization that has lasted 7,000 years uh, was no more. The UN called it the worst engineered environmental disaster of the last century. In the 90s, the population of the marshes shrank to a fraction of what it once was. About 90% of the marshes were starved and destroyed. This once lush landscape became a dried-out wilderness. 
The water has been dried up completely and people was unable to live in the marshes. And with no way to make a living, thousands of people were displaced. Families who had lived in the marshes for centuries started leaving their homes behind to move to bigger cities like Basra or Baghdad or across the border to Iran. And many of them lived in poverty. Saddam Hussein had made the Fertile Crescent almost unlivable. We'll be back after the break. When we left off, the marshes were facing a crisis. Azam had been living in the U.S. for two and a half decades at this point. He had an American wife, his kids were American citizens, and as he put it in one interview, he achieved the American dream. But his homeland and this place he once adored was dying, and he didn't want to be a bystander from across the ocean. So in 1999, I began working on trying to put the spotlight on the drying of the marshes. And I was saying that the restoration of marshes is possible when other people were saying it's impossible to restore the marshes. So he moves back to Iraq and started his organization, Nature Iraq, and campaigned for the marshes to be reflooded, to be brought back to life. And with his family still in America, Azam threw himself into his work and his mission to bring back at least some of the marshes' former prosperity, to try and return it to the place that he once experienced with his father. If you watch the nature documentary about the marshes in the 90s or the early 2000s, there's about a 100% chance Azam was featured in it. Dr. Azam Olwash often visited the marshes as a child 30 years ago. He was everywhere, telling anybody who would listen about the destruction of his homeland. The worst crime of the century, the worst environmental crime of the century, not to speak anything about the humanitarian aspect of this. After the fall of Saddam Hussein, Azam started to see things turn around. With the regime gone, foreign money started pouring in from the UN and others. And with that money, programs to reflood the marshes. Diggers tore down the embankments and the dams that had choked the wetlands. And in the winters, water gradually began to flow through them again. We're, we're, we're coming to it right there. Oh, this is where this you knocked the hole in, this, the, that's right, in that's the dike. That's right. So you brought People who had long since left the area came back to help with the effort, moving back into their old communities. Indeed, I, I got the last laugh. <laughs> when the marshes were restored, they came back at an age of modernization. So people don't have to live inside the marshes anymore. They can live on cities on the outside of the marshes and then ride the boat, and within 15 minutes they go reach what used to take Four hours to reach by polling. The world is a, is, a, is a big village anymore. I mean, no, living inside the marsh does not mean that you disconnect from, from, from civilization. You could be part of civilization while enjoying nature. And frankly, they're not living there to enjoy nature. They're living there to live off of nature. So I romanticize the, the life of the marsh, but it is, in fact, a harsh way of life. Reflooding was also a slow process. Water levels only ever got to about 75% of what they once were before Saddam Hussein's destruction. The marshes were also returning to a different world than they had once thrived in. 
In the decades since they dried up, temperatures in the region had increased. Recent drought has caused the levels of both the Tigris and Euphrates to fall. Iraq and the Middle East happen to be one of the places in the world most affected by climate change. Over the past two years, rainfall has only been about 30 to 40 percent of normal levels. Climate change is a threat, definitely a threat, not only to Iraq, but the entire region. And frankly, if we don't start addressing it today, we will have, not only we, but the world will have a problem. The effects of climate change on Iraq and the region are going to be double. It's not just uh, negative effects associated with, with the weather phenomena, but also the fact that our economy is going to be hurt majorly. The climate crisis isn't the only threat. Upriver, the Turkish government is underway with a massive hydroelectric project, building dams that would keep water in Turkey away from the marshlands. So right now, the future of the marshes is uncertain. With all these converging threats, it's hard to see a world where they return to the state they were in during Azam's childhood. But he remains hopeful. The restoration of these marshes is not only the responsibility of Iraq. The maintenance of these marshes into the future is not only the responsibility of Iraq. It's the responsibility of the world to help Iraq keep these marshes alive. And you said you have children of your own. Have you taken them? Unfortunately, the situation in Iraq has not allowed me to take them to the marshes yet. And, and I, I certainly hope that one day I will be able to visit the marshes with them. And then, maybe then, they will understand why I was missing in their teenagehood. You think a big part of your life's mission has been the marshes, and it kind of took away from... Unfortunately, I feel at a loss. Iraq and the restoration of the marshes have not been without a price for me personally. I lost important moments in my children's growth. I miss their first dates. I miss their, what do you call them, the spelling bee wins, uh, their proms, their birthdays. I tried to come back, but it's two opposite sides of the world. And so, so I was missing in action during their teenagehood. And here is what, what makes me emotional. The fact is, if I knew what the price would be, I would still do it. Because frankly, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than than my own personal happiness. In a sense, yes, it, I, mean, I cannot tell you that I'm altruistic. It has worked towards my ego. I mean, as a professional, I've had a rewarding career over the past 18 years working for the marshes and the water and the restructuring of Iraq on the professional level. But on the personal level, the price was heavy. I hope to make it up to them. I hope to be there when the grandchildren are growing and I hope I hope I can take them, both the grandchildren and my children to the marshes and show them the results and show them the pictures of when it was dried when I first arrived. And I hope they can forgive me.
This episode was produced by me, Dana Balut, Alex Atak, and Tamara Jabouri. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri, and sound design and mixing by Alex Atak and Mohamed Khrezat. Our team also includes Nadine Shakir and Zena Duidar. A special thanks to Azam Alwash for speaking to us so candidly. You can find a transcript of the episode on our website, kerningcultures.com, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>